0: Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. Cool. Well, we're here uh, in uh, what we're calling, um, I don't know if I've named the series well enough or not, but uh, formation series where we're looking at uh, some of the story of uh, the people of God through the Old Testament and how that's formed our faith, formed our journey, uh, formed our, our story together and hopefully ultimately forms our character that we will learn Uh, Some things through this that will be transformative, that will make us new. And uh, we've been going through the story of uh, Abraham, and now we're jumping to the story of Joseph. And I want to give uh, an apology right at the beginning. A hundred times when I've been preparing this, I have said... um, Joshua instead of Joseph, and I guarantee I'm going to do that at some point in this message. So just to warn you, if I happen to say Joshua, I most likely mean Joseph. So fair warning there. Uh, We're going to look at his story. We're going to first see how it fits in the whole uh, outline of the Book of Genesis in the in the sort of the lead up to it, and then we're going to just sort of dig into it and see what there is to learn about uh, God's love, God's sovereignty, and God's power working uh, through uh, the life of this character. Um the story of Joseph is is huge actually in the scriptures. Uh, it's actually uh, almost a third of the book of Genesis. Like the last third of the book of Genesis is just this story. So it has incredible weight and, and, and a great deal of importance in the journey. So I'm just gonna walk us through uh, and just, just say at the very start, you know, from the book of Genesis, and I wanna lay this as a foundation uh, to help us understand um, where, where we're going with the story of Joseph. The book of Genesis starts in a radical way. It starts with God all alone all by himself, completely sufficient completely powerful, uh, with nothing yet having been created, which is sort of an astounding claim for any book, to claim that it begins before time began. So that's that's what we want to start with, is this story of Yahweh, this God who has the power to make all things and to walk his creation through according to his sovereignty. He is before it all. He is above it all. He is higher than it all. And so he is the king over it. We used the illustration last week to talk about uh, the authority that I would have over a Lego set uh, that I made. I would have the authority to take it apart or put it back together. I would be the king of that. If somebody else messed with it, they would be in trouble, but I am the one who could get to mess with that Lego set because I created it. So we place God at the beginning of this story as the ultimate sovereign creator and with a word, with a, with a single declaration. Uh, he went from there being nothing to there being the universe. So God, all by himself, with nothing around him, to God and the entire universe that we see. So we understand uh, the power uh, that he has, his sovereign, Glory and His might to bring into being uh, the power that fires uh, the 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 fuel that uh, fires the heart of suns and stars and black holes and galaxies and trillions and trillions and trillions of light years of distance all spoken into existence with His word. And so then He takes uh, in the story. So we get that at the beginning of the story, Genesis one and two, and we jump to Genesis three, and we see that He's taken His creation. He's created this planet Earth, and He's put people on it, the height of his creation in terms of complexity and beauty and the image of him in that creation, and he's given those people a choice, uh, given those people the opportunity to know uh, about good and evil the way he knows about good and evil. He tells them not to learn that, but he knows that by opening the door to allow them to walk in that. Um they're going to make horrible mistakes with that knowledge. They are going to fail. They are going to make incredible messes. They sin uh, and, and destroy themselves in walking in that broken way, that choice that he's given them to do ultimately so that he would have a people uh, that could choose to love him though he knows uh, that the wickedness of their hearts is such that they will choose other than him time and time and time again. And the next stories that unfold in the book of Genesis are just that. We have the story of the Tower of Babel and the story of Noah that are placed in the book to absolutely help us understand that humans at their core are rotten, humans at their core are corrupt, that left to our own devices time and time again, we are going to wreak destruction on the world around us and the destruction uh, on, on ourselves and on one another, uh, that we are corrupt and we are broken. And so we walk through the story of the Tower of Babel, we walk through uh, a corrupt world uh, destroyed by the flood, uh, a restart with the story of Noah, and growing corruption and paganism just continuing on in the story, humans uh, are returning to evil, and God decides at that point, well, it had been his plan all along, uh, to work with this person Abraham and to single him out from among uh, the pagans around him essentially uh, Abraham a sheep herder uh, that we talked about last week uh, living in uh, the Middle East and he came to Abraham and said hey Abraham here is you are. You're a guy that I have chosen, and I'm going to put my story inside of you. I'm going to put my life inside of you, and I am going to promise you uh, and bring uh, revelation and redemption uh, to the whole earth through you. And so your descendants will be as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. Uh, And I'm going to bless the nations through you. And God begins to unfold his plan uh, for uh, the world uh, through Abraham. We looked at that last week and we see this crazy story of the family tree of Abraham. It's all outlined in the book of Genesis. And we didn't even begin to touch the detail, but God kind of in his kindness, constantly bringing Abraham along, uh, restoring his promises, uh, Abraham being disobedient, Abraham making mistakes. And ultimately, the result of this is this crazy, dysfunctional family. Uh, this family with stories of incest. This family with stories of uh, murder and this stories of uh, all kinds of ridiculous, uh, painful uh, moments, uh, prostitutes and the whole deal. Like it's a it's a brutal brutal story of a very very dysfunctional family. So we have this dysfunction, disobedience, disaster, um, and somehow through this disaster. We have uh, God working out his destiny. God working out his plan in the world. Sovereignly through all these broken people, so here we here we go. We have uh, the story of Joshua, and it just wants to show us uh, again God's sovereignty working through it. Up to this point, we've had God going back and forth with Abraham, Abraham's wickedness. Joseph comes in as a hero that is kind of like a a new and improved Abraham, somebody who is uh, beginning to walk in a way that is a little closer to godliness. Uh, the work of God has been happening. Uh, we still see in Joseph's story, you know, he's sort of a favored child. Never a good thing to do do uh, is to have uh, a, a father, you know, consider another child their favorite. Uh, and the hatred uh, that results as a result of that, the brothers hating him, the sense of entitlement that Joshua uh, lived in. Did I say Joshua? Yes, I did. Um, yeah. The... <laughs> Ah, the uh, the sort of hatred that uh, Joseph was uh, underneath because of his brothers. Uh, he'd become sort of an entitled guy. He was tattletailing on them. Uh, and ultimately, uh, he uh, was a part of this sort of disaster, but beginning to be this sort of redeemed person in this story. Uh, and so it reads like this in Genesis 37 at the start of the story. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any others of his sons. And he made them a robe. He made him a robe of many colors. But when his brother's Saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers they hated him and could not speak peacefully peacefully to him so there's this incredible again brokenness of Jacob's sons and this emergence of uh, Joseph who we know is going to be a heroic person and we know that God is leading in this process of of raising uh Joseph up. In uh, verse 37, uh, verses 5 and 8, Joseph has this crazy dream where he is um, looking uh, out uh, in the field. Uh, They've all gathered up wheat and their sheaves of wheat, and he has this dream, which is, you know, very self-aggrandizing kind of dream where he sort of says, yeah, my sheaf is standing up here nice and tall, and you, all my 11 other brothers, you're all bowing to me. And he goes, of course, like brilliantly, and he tells this to them, right? Like, like this is going to make them love him more and and like him more, right? And obviously, they hate him. And so we see this in in verse 6 through 8. Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in a field. And behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. So they hated him even more. So in this, we see sort of Joseph's uh, kind of folly in terms of how he's relating to his brothers. But at the same time, we're seeing the beginning of God revealing his plan in all of this, right? God is uh, showing that he knows what's about to happen, uh, that he has planned what's about to happen. And he's beginning to work something out in the life of Joseph. Uh, The end result of it, the way God works this out in Joseph's life, is that he is sold into slavery, so he has not treated his brothers well, and they have treated him even worse. Uh, he goes off, um, at, you know, out in the field to to say hi to his brothers. They're out there working. Uh, they throw him in a pit. Um, they ultimately deceive his father and say that he's been killed, and all the while, uh, with a little bit of objection from one of the brothers, Reuben, essentially sell him off to some traders uh, who are heading down to Egypt. And Joseph gets sold, and ultimately gets sold, into uh, one of the leaders in the nation of Egypt, a guy named Potiphar, to work in his household as a slave. And so this Hebrew guy from, uh, from Canaan ultimately ends up in Egypt as a slave. Um story goes on. Uh, he has an encounter with uh, Potiphar, this guy who's leading over him. Uh, he grows in the household. He shows that he's doing really well. He shows that he has wisdom and knowledge that God is with him and ultimately rises to a place of prominence in the household. Uh, the woman of the house takes... Uh, an interest in him and he flees the, her sexual advances and runs away. She lies about it in the story. Again, we're summarizing broad sections of the story, uh, but she lies about what happened um, and he is ultimately thrown in jail. So he goes from uh, in, a, in a pit uh, to slavery in Egypt uh, to uh, growing as a leader among the household of Potiphar, then ultimately uh, misunderstood, uh, mis treated, and ultimately thrown back into jail. So chapter 39 to 40 has Joseph in prison, uh, where he is, you know, kind of pit of despair kind of situation, Uh, but God is giving dreams to various other people in the household of of Pharaoh, and ultimately Joseph is proving himself to be a useful person within the prison and interpreting dreams because God is speaking to him. Uh, Ultimately, he interprets a dream of Pharaoh's. Uh, word gets up to Pharaoh again. We're glossing over massive parts of the text. But uh, jo- Joseph, um, you know, interprets a dream of Pharaoh's and uh, ultimately uh, is promoted, uh, ultimately uh, offers a solution. And Pharaoh sees the wisdom and the treasure that this person is, promotes him essentially to be the prime minister, vice president, or whatever you would call it, the second in command in all of Egypt. And so Joseph has gone from uh, slavery uh, to, to leadership. What I want to bring us to is uh, that dream that Joseph interpreted for Pharaoh. Because remember, we're looking at, remember this God, Yahweh, who existed before time, working out a plan according to his good pleasure, according to his glory, through the life of Joseph. And this, this just the story and the place of the sovereignty of God in this story is just undeniable. And so we're going to have to grapple with some challenging uh, questions around that. Um, so in chapter 41, uh, there is... Uh, a dream that the Pharaoh has that he says there's going to be seven, he, the, the dream is that there are seven fat cows um, and that there are seven lean cows, seven cows that are sort of starving. And Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh and says, okay, you're going to have seven years that, are, that there's plenty where the grain grows, where the grass grows, where there's lots, abundance of food, and then seven years where there's famine. And so you need to begin to prepare uh, for that. And ultimately God is going to use that famine to bring uh, Joseph's brothers uh, from Canaan into Egypt, where they will grow into uh, a nation in that context. Uh, But I want us to see that this famine is from God. I want us to understand God's sovereignty in this because it's going to help us build something as we go. One, God revealed, this is Genesis chapter 41, verse 25, and this is Joseph uh, talking to Pharaoh. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he, is about to do so we don't like that right we don't like the idea of a sovereign god bringing about a famine in the text we read earlier right uh from psalm 105 it says god summoned the famine so we're seeing uh the heavy hand of God operating and making these things happen. Again, we're gonna to have to talk about how we nuance uh, the will of God and understand the will of God in the world as it's unfolding. How do we understand the will of God in COVID? All of these kinds of questions are surfacing for us now, but we're just sticking to the text uh, later on, a couple of verses later. So Moses is going to great pains to make sure that we understand God's involvement in this famine, right? He says it three times in a very short period in the text, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So again, repetition and then later in verse 32 and the doubling of pharaoh's dream so pharaoh had a su- subsequent de- dream the doubling of pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed like how strong is this language the thing is fixed by god and god will shortly bring it about so this is crazy god uh, summons creates fixes makes this famine happened and Moses is that the writer of the the book of Genesis is a great pains to make sure we understand God's hand in all this and we look uh, back even through the archaeology we see these uh, granaries that were that have been uncovered in Egypt where just so much uh, grain was stored and some people would attribute them to Joseph's time uh, we don't know for sure when they were built all of that kind of thing but uh, God was using Joseph through this dream through his leadership to ultimately in those seven years of plenty, prepare for famine that would have likely wiped out the people of God in Canaan, but God ultimately uh, rescued them. And so Joseph says it like this in verse 45, when his brothers finally come to him, again, I'm skipping over large parts of the text, Joseph's brothers come to hang out with him uh, and to say, hey, we need help. They don't know yet that he is uh, he is Joseph, their brother. Um, That's revealed through, you know, again, another crazy part of the story that I'm not going to go into. But ultimately, once they figure out that he is uh, Joseph and that those are his brothers, he explains it to them like this. He says, and God sent me before you here to Egypt to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So Joseph was thrown into the pit. Joseph was sold off as a slave. uh, And his brothers did that with wickedness and with evil in their hearts. And Joseph is saying, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you selling me into slavery. It was God sending me. It was not going into bondage. It was going into mission. Going into purpose. And so a radical uh, perspective uh, that Joseph had there. Again, it's so hard to go through such a, a a long story so fast. But by the time we get to chapter 50, uh, they're reestablished. They're kind of in Egypt. Uh, Jacob has died. Uh, Joseph's father has died. And the brothers are at this point in the story where they're like, we we need to restore things with our brother. We need to sort this out because he's going to be really mad that his father died. He's going to be really mad about all the stuff that we've done to him, even though he's taking care of us, even though he's got food for us, even though we're sheltered here, we know he must still be angry with us he must still hate us for what we've done to him. So they come to have a conversation with him uh, because uh, they they know that Joseph ultimately has the power to wipe him out. And then uh, Joseph uh, again explains what's happened uh, through the context of the sovereignty of God. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about. It, that many people should be kept alive. And so this verse, uh, Genesis uh, chapter 50 verse 20 is a really, really famous and important verse in all of the arguments about Calvinism and Arminianism and uh, the whole sort of, is God sovereign? Do people have choice, free will? All that sort of debate. This is one of those texts that's really important. And I just wanted, so, so I took some time to dig into it, right? Because we it reads like this, as, as it did in the text. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. But I've heard people, and and I've done it myself, uh, just sort of really quickly glossing over the text, sort of saying, "Uh, but you meant evil against me, but God used it for good, right? That's just sort of a common paraphrase that we hear. And I just wanted to just let that sit with us for just a minute, right? Like that's one way to sort of interpret it. Uh, A person meant evil towards us or we meant evil towards a person. But God then maybe somehow took that mess and said, oh man, I wasn't expecting that. I, I I didn't really think it should go that way. That's not what I wanted to happen. So I'm gonna have to take that evil mess you made and I'll sovereignly untangle it and put it together and somehow work something good out of it. And that's what I'll do. Uh, I meant it for evil, but God took that thing, fixed it and used it for good. But that's not what the text says at all. Uh, When you you unpack it in the Hebrew, it really means what it says literally in the text. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Uh, That word uh, in the Hebrew for meant is in both of those positions in the sentence. It's the exact same Hebrew word. It's a repetition. You uh, accounted it. You designed it. You devised evil against me. But God devised good for me, for us, in it. And Moses doesn't seem to have any problem with that paradox. But that doesn't make sense to you and me. How can uh, people devise evil and God have devised good through it? it? It doesn't work for our Western mind. It works for the Eastern mind. Uh, Moses could understand it, but for us, it's like, how does that happen? How can uh, the evil that's done against me also be the good that is done for me? Um, and what we're going to see is that God, in His sovereignty, is capable of doing that. So let's just break it down to to the positions in the story. Uh, so say we are Joseph in the story. Right? We can see evil things happening to us, and we can see uh, evil things uh, happening around us. Um, both as uh, evil things that are happening, like truly evil, truly wrong, truly bad, but also as part of the journey towards something good that God has planned for us. That's what we see in the text. That's what we see in the story of Joseph. And so Joseph spends these 22 years of his life in this crazy place where uh, he has had this evil done to him of him having been sold into slavery. And, you know, he's 17 years old at this point. We know how many years he was uh, with Potiphar, how many years he was in jail, how many years he was with Pharaoh uh, until the famine uh, unfolded. Um, so we, we know that timeline is 22 years. Joseph lived not knowing the plan that was there for him. All he knew was that evil had happened to him, Right. So there's this uh, incredible challenge. And I think probably it's safe to say that some of us are in that place. Some of us know what it's like to be in that place where it feels like evil has been done to us. It feels like the world has turned against us. Maybe it's you're thinking of COVID. Maybe you're thinking of uh, somebody has has hurt you. Somebody has harmed you. Maybe you're thinking about um, uh, pain that you're in for, for whatever reason. And that could be attributed just to the evil works and evil deeds of that person. But we can take incredible comfort from the idea that uh, as painful and as difficult and as challenging as those times are, that the end result is going to be better than it would have been had those things not happened. Because we have a sovereign and good and loving God who is working even through uh, the sins of people. And I'm going to explain how that sort of works in just a moment. But let's just put ourselves in that place where we are the brothers in the story. Say that we're the ones who've committed evil. And that's true of all of us. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have harmed people. We've stolen life from people. We've, we've wounded them. We've uh, lied to them. We've uh, uh, taken their time and their life and their energy by being, uh, People who uh, are not godly in their lives. There's all kinds of different things that we've done, Um, and in that, in that story, in that paradox, you know, Joseph is fully able to say that uh, they're responsible for that evil. They're responsible for the wicked things in their hearts. They're responsible for having thrown him in a pit and ripped his cloak and lied to their dad and and sold him off into slavery. And the same is true for us. We are fully responsible for our evil deeds and for our sins yet god can still work his ultimate goodness and glory through them for god it's not a paradox For God, it's possible. Uh, The big question that we have to come through, the thing that we have to to deal with in all of that is is this question of how can God act through the sins of people while himself remaining sinless? Like how does that sovereignty work? Is he a God who is just sort of some sort of twisted being uh, up in the heavens who has like set things out so that his people would have the opportunity to sin and they would have the opportunity to fail so that he would get to judge them? Is that sort of what's in the heart of God? Is, is that how that works? And I think the best way that I can, uh, I can help us come to the conclusion uh, that this is God working love for us is to just use a simple uh, illustration or a simple uh, metaphor, uh, just the story of uh, the kids stealing cookies uh, from the cookie jar. Now imagine that you're a father or a mother and that you are sort of walking by um, the kitchen. And you see out of the corner of your eye that your little child is uh, reaching up on the counter, uh, stealing something uh, from from the counter. They've been told not to take the cookies. that Those cookies are for later. That company is coming soon, and I've got them set out and ready for the company, but the kid has snuck into the kitchen and stolen and and is stealing the cookies. Now, you as a parent have a choice uh, to um, deal with that in a couple of different ways. Um, You can, one say, I'm going to step right into that room and I'm just going to sort of walk in and uh, and uh, make it look like I didn't really notice them, but I walk in and immediately they'll realize they're getting caught. They'll put the cookies back and, and we'll just sort of pretend nothing ever happened there. Or you could, um, you know, step into the room and confront them immediately on that issue. You confront them on their sin, confront them on their disobedience and say, hey, that is a, a thing that we need to deal with right here and right now. But sometimes as a parent, it's been my experience and I think sometimes be your experience as a parent that with the same love in your heart, you can quietly watch your children steal the cookies and watch them eat the cookies and you can wait for that moment of recognition on their face when they know honestly for themselves that they've done something that isn't right. And you can see that glimmer of repentance in their heart. That glimmer of, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. And you can use that moment to go and to have that conversation with your child. Uh, you can use that moment to teach them. You can use that moment to. Uh, say, hey, let's let's go here for a second. Let's look at a recipe for cookies and let's look at how much sugar is in those cookies. And let's look at how much butter is in those cookies so that you can know that, you know, these are a wonderful little treat, and a snack for you. And we, we dole them out for you, but they're not something that you're supposed to be eating by the handful because they're not good for you. And maybe you wait long enough till that kid has a, a bit of a sore tummy from having eaten so many cookies. So that their experience is teaching them as well. And so you see uh, that as a parent, you can uh, love a child through the possibility of them uh, walking in sin, walking in uh, something that is contrary to your will. And you can watch that unfold, and you can still have love in your heart. And so when we look at this incredible paradox that uh, things happen that are evil and wrong, and at the same time... Uh, they are used uh, by God to bring forth his goodness and his salvation and his glory. Uh, we, we simply marvel at the mystery that God is powerful enough to bring love and salvation out of both our suffering and our sin. He can bring love and salvation, not only out of our good decisions, and that's obviously preferable. There, again, there's not an excuse for sin in this. But God can bring his love and his goodness out of things that we feel like are things that are hurting us, or even these moments when we've hurt others. And that's the beauty and the power of his sovereignty. And it's and just, just to make it clear, this isn't something that is just something that we see in these Old Testament stories. This is the framework through which uh, somebody like Peter interpreted what happened to Jesus on the cross. Uh, many, many years later, that God was sovereignly working his salvation in the work through horrible things. If we look at Acts chapter 4, verse 27 uh, to 28, and this is in a larger context, a larger sermon that Peter is preaching, uh, he's saying this, thing: saying, For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So all of these people, Herod, Pontius, Pilate, uh, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, were all gathered against their holy servant Jesus. Were all gathered against Jesus. All gathered to work evil against him. But the way that uh, Peter frames it, as he says, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All of that evil was gathered to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we take ourselves back to the first image, the image of Yahweh who existed before time. A creation that he created uh, in which to pour out his love and unfold his plan Uh, people that he created with the uh, possibility and the ability to reject him and hurt themselves and cause great folly in the earth. And we look at all of the brokenness in the earth, uh, the brokenness of the ground, uh, corruption in human hearts, uh, a planet that uh, has earthquakes and fires and and isn't always a safe place for us to live in. And we look at all of that um, as something that still fits under the banner Of the sovereignty of God through which he works out something even better and something even more glorious and something even more beautiful and something that more powerfully uh, glorifies his name and and it results in goodness for us and that's the difference between him and a, a pagan god of the land of Canaan is that he is working out goodness for us a goodness far greater than we could ever imagine and so we live in this incredible place where we're comforted uh, by uh, the work that he's doing in the world we're comforted uh, by the beauty that's unfolding through suffering through tragedy through pain through difficulty Uh, something greater far greater is still unfolding the beauty and the glory of god And of course, we do see this most clearly in the cross. We see Jesus who, because of our sin uh, at our hands, because of our wickedness, because of our rebellion, uh, died, was punished, was bruised for our iniquities. And we see words around the sovereignty of God, for God was pleased to bruise him for our sakes. And we know that through the wickedness of our hands, God, in his power and in his might, with the same power with which he spoke the universe into existence, affected our salvation. And set us free from sin and sets us free from death and ultimately allows us to walk forward as his children and ultimately into eternity ultimately into a restoration of that place of walking with god in the garden and so we just simply marvel we just simply surrender to it and say that we love him that we trust him and we give him our lives the sovereign king of the universe. And that's our prayer. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.